to the Mad Wild West podcast. Kick your boots off and stay a while because you're about to hear the stories lost in time from the people that lived and made the Wild West mad. Okay, this episode of the Mad Wild West is brought to you by none other than Mariani Wine Tonic. Here's what it says. This is from the 1800s. Mariani wine quickly restores health, strength, energy, and vitality. Hastens convalescence, especially after influenza. His Holiness the Pope writes that he has fully appreciated the benefits and effects of this tonic wine and has forwarded to Mr. Mariani as a token of his gratitude a gold medal bearing his effigy. Mariani wine fortifies, it strengthens, it stimulates, refreshes the body and brain. Mariani wine. And here's the secret. Apparently, this wine tonic had seven grams of cocaine per glass. So if you got a time machine, you can run out and go back to the 1800s and get you a bottle. And for the ads of the day. This one here is taken from the Arizona Weekly Enterprise, October 15th, 1881. W.J. Horns Electromagnetic Belt, patented November 11th, 1879. Medical Electricity, that's what it states on there, and it's got a drawing of a belt, just so you guys know. It looks like it's got, looks like it's got some kind of leather belt in the drawing with some kind of like a metal net that runs around it, and it almost like a, a string with a little coin at the end near the belt buckle, and it states... Horn's electromagnetic belt, the only genuine. First premium state fair. Electromagnetic belts, new style, $10. Electromagnetic belts, extra appliance, $15. And electromagnetic belt, nine improvements for only $20. It's guaranteed for one year. Best in the world will positively cure without medicine rheumatism, paralysis, kidney disease, impotency, rupture, I don't know what that is, but I want that, liver disease, nervousness, spinal disease, piles, and other diseases. Also, and this says it in big words and they're repeating it, rupture. Uh, I don't know what that is. Maybe some of you medical People out there listening to this podcast know what that is, but that one scares me, especially since it's uh, bolded here in big letters. But supposedly it cures it. Who knows? Guaranteed, relieved, or cured. Send for Illustrated Catalog. Hundreds of cured. W.J. Horn Manufacturing. 702 Market Street, San Francisco, California. Wow. Wow. They should start making those belts, hand those out at hospitals and stuff. Sounds like it can fix just about everything that can be wrong. All we need is W.J. Horn's electromagnetic belt. So this episode was brought to you by Wine Tonic. But here's a new one. This one here, it's just a little bit of a different twist. Kind of on the same thing. It's a uh, brown medicine bottle is what it looks like. And it says established. 1837. Theodore Medcalf and Company. Coca wine, a pleasant tonic and invigoration from fresh coca leaves. And here's the description on the back. Big letters, it says Coca wine. Underneath, Medcalf's 
coca wine has been used by the medical profession for many years, and it's acknowledged as the most reliable preparation of its class. Its use has extended from special to general practice, and it is now a worldwide reputation. Physicians have found it to be a palatable, diffusible, stimulating tonic, sustaining life by retarding waste, removing fatigue, and restoring and improving the appetite. Metcalf's coca wine has been found useful for children, elderly people, and convalescents, as the stimulation produced by a medium dose is slow and sustained, and it's different from the excitement produced by any other wine. Here's the dose. You'll love this. Now, this is a Mad Wild West dose right here. Wine glass full three times a day. Yeah, that'll cure just about anything. I don't know how much cocaine's in this, but uh, yeah, that is a couple of the wonderful things for sale in the Mad Wild West. Cinch your saddles down, folks, because you made it to the main store here. Today, I'm doing a little bit different in this podcast. We are going to follow a young man. I'm not sure of his age, but I'm guessing from the sounds of it, about 20 years old, somewhere in there, maybe late teens. And we're going to follow him on his travel to California. And I'm going to pick it up. He's already in a wagon train. And he's talked a little bit about coming out. And he's heading from East Coast to the West Coast. And he's trying to make it to California. So let's follow his journey a little bit today on the Mad Wild West podcast. It says, we crossed the Mississippi at Hannibal. And at Brunswick, we met Mr. Clark, who had lost much of his property in a great flood. When told we were bound for California, he vowed he'd go too, which he did. He settled in San Francisco and gave to Clark's Point the name which it bears today. We wintered in Lexington, Lafayette County, Missouri. We had not been there long when a steamboat arrived, bringing 150 Sac and Fox Indians from Iowa who were on their way to a reservation in Kansas Territory. Two of Black Hawk's sons were with them, fine-looking fellows. One we found weighed 250 and the other 215 pounds. My uncle made a contract with the agent to move them to Westport on the boundary between Missouri and Kansas Territory. It took all our teams to haul their effects, their children, and those who could not walk. We started on Christmas Day and traveled about five miles when there came on a severe snowstorm. In a short time, the road became covered so that we lost our way and we had to camp on a small creek among shrub oaks. We had attended to our animals and prepared for supper and we warming ourselves at the campfire when John Van Gordon, in pulling a pistol out of his pocket, accidentally discharged it and shot my cousin, G.W. Harlan, who was stooping over the fire. The ball entered his right hip and passed upward. He cried out that he was killed and fell backwards. This caused much confusion among the Indians. They were on their feet in an instant. No interpreter was present to explain to them the cause of the shooting, and the matters were serious. As they were some 75 armed Indian warriors, all under great excitement, finally one of the sons of Black Hawk came forward. He could speak some English, and being informed about the accident, he explained it to the Indians, and it pacified them. He then called the Indian medicine man, who carefully traced the course of the ball, which he found under the right nipple. And he said with the proper treatment, the young man would get well. 
Next day, a doctor came with an ambulance and took George back to Lexington. The rest of us with our Indian freight went on to Westport, and returning by the way of Independence, we found our patient rapidly getting well. During this winter, through the care and kind treatment of my uncle and his family, I had much improved health. They always had prevented my doing any hard work, which they thought would injure me. With returning health and strength, I began to think it was time for me to do something toward my own maintenance. Much hemp was raised in this part of Missouri, where we were wintering, and I found a chance to earn wages in breaking hemp. My uncle at first objected to this engagement, but finally said I might go at it, and he would watch me lest it might injure me. One morning in January, I began to work for a farmer who had 400 slaves, a few of whom were nearly as white as any of us. The slave that I chose as my teacher in this new kind of work was named Jacob, the same as myself, and was fair complexion, that I having reddish hair and blue eyes. He told me that his mother was a slave and a quadrone, and his father was his master. He also told me that three very pretty girls with the same complexion who were in his mother's house were his sisters. His master's daughters were the special servants. The house in which the contraband family lived was much superior to the house of the rest of the slaves. It was a comfortable log house lined and neatly kept. The other slaves lived in common log cabins. Jake made a wide distinction between his family and the other slaves. He called them, basically the N-word. Aside from this, the master was a very good man and kind to his slaves. Sometimes, however, when a slave would behave badly, Jake said master would sell him to Louisiana people and he would never be heard from again. The master's next door had a large force of slaves and was very different in his treatment of them. This man one night came home drunk from town and meeting one of his slaves, an old man, cursed him as good for nothing and killed him. My uncle found this to be true, as the murderer was arrested and fined $50 as punishment for doing it. He was a white gentleman, and old Sam was only a slave. I learned also that Jake's master was permitting him to buy his freedom. His value was set at $1,500, and Jake had already made and paid $1,200 and would pay the balance in three years. At first, the work was very severe upon me, and I did not get through with a very great quantity of hemp. The master, at the end of my first day, weighed my quantity and found it only to be 47 pounds. Jake being an old hand, his quantity was found to be 200 pounds. The master then said to me that I have earned 37 and one-half cents, but that Jake had earned $1.50, of which Jake's share was 50 cents. That, in this way, Jake was buying his freedom, that he hated to lose him and could have sold him on a previous Saturday for $2,000, but preferred to let him buy his freedom in this way and afterwards to let him work for wages as a free man. On the succeeding Sunday, I attended a slave auction. There was quite a large number of buyers. The slaves were in an enclosure men, women, children together, and they were sold off rapidly without regard, evidently to the separating of family members. To me, it looked very cruel and it affected me deeply. The last slave that was sold was a young girl. The auctioneer said, gentlemen, this girl is the last we can offer you today, and I want you to bid up quickly on her. You can see that in form, color, and beauty, she cannot be surpassed in Lafayette County. Her age is 17 years and eight months and she is an excellent servant. 
One of the bidders desired that her mouth be opened, that he might see her teeth. She was caused to do this, and a most beautiful set she had. The bidding went on, 400, 500, 600, 800, and so on until she was knocked down at $2,500. Her buyer asked how much black blood she had, and was told that she had about one-eighth. I never went to any more slave sales. The whole thing looked abominable to me. I came away with feelings of sadness and disgust. I continued working among the hemp until spring and became quite handy at it. I earned enough to pay for my full outfit of the journey and had $40 left. About my best investment was in a dapple gray mule, which afterwards proved a good friend when such a friend was needed by me. On April 5th, 1846, we had a grand time. About 500 people came from Missouri to see us off and bid us Godspeed. Reverend Mr. Dunleavy, one of the immigrants, preached a sermon. He was quite eloquent, and his discourse had a powerful effect upon us all. On April 6th, we said goodbye to the states and started for our promised land. The California immigration moved together for three days ex-governor boggs of missouri being captain when we were divided into two parties we went on in command of one half the other half in which was our party then elected judge moran of missouri as captain they wished to elect my uncle but he refused command for some time everything went on smoothly enough in our company there was a particular preacher for such he claimed to be named Iman. He thought that he was not recognized, but several of us knew him to be no preacher at all, but a man who had been imprisoned in, in Missouri for being a horse thief and had broken jail and escaped by crawling through a stovepipe hole in the roof. He became very wroth at our captain because, as he said, the latter did not preserve proper discipline. He complained about this mostly to the young men, appearing afraid to approach the captain or my uncle. We young folks decided to gratify his ambition and have some fun as well. At night, our camp was made by drawing all the wagons into a circle, and after supper, we held a meeting of some 30 or 40 youngsters. We had speeches and great show of enthusiasm. Finally, it was moved and unanimously voted that Captain Moran had failed to do his duty by not keeping proper discipline, and that he should be turned out of office. Then Iman was nominated, and he was elected with tremendous hurrah. The older men, startled by the noise, ran out to see what was up. I called my uncle and the captain aside and explained it to them. I begged them not to interfere, for it would be fun, and told them that the boys had elected him that night and tomorrow night we would put him out. The boys lifted him up and carried him in procession all about the camp with great shouting and applause. The next morning, Iman ordered every team to be ready to start at 6 a.m., and that any who were not ready should be left behind and not allowed to join the company again. Accordingly, all were ready at the appointed time except one old man named Pyle, whose oxen had strayed away and could not be readily found. The order was given to march in four platoons. Four wagons would start together, keeping 20 feet apart. Then four more should be moved in the same manner, and so on, till all were under the way. My uncle had 80 head of two-year-old cattle, and he was ordered to keep them half a mile to the rear. Iman rode back and forth all day giving orders and was on the run most of the time, so that sometime before we got to camp, his horse gave out when he was far in the rear, seeing if the loose cattle were nearer than the half mile. Before he could get to the front again, the older men had camped and turned stock to graze. 
He was in great rage about this. That night, he called a meeting of the young men and stated his grievances to them and asked their views and their advice. Just then, old man Pyle came to camp and said Iman had done him great wrong and endangered the lives of himself and family by making him camp half a mile away from the rest of us without any protection from the Sioux and would like nothing better to kill him and his wife and daughters. These daughters were very pretty girls, and some of the young men had already begun to cast sheep's eye in their direction. The old man's talk made quite a sensation, and young Billy MacDonald moved that Iman should be forthwith turned out of office and Captain Morgan reinstated. I second the motion, and it was carried unanimously. Iman was wrothy at me for this. As I got down from my wagon, Iman was standing beside his wife across the corral, armed with a bowie knife and rifle. As he aimed at me, I thought I could see right down the barrel. He pulled the trigger, but his gun snapped. I quickly brought my rifle to bear on him, but my uncle knocked it upward as I fired, and my ball only cut a groove on the top of Iman's head. There was much excitement in the camp, and some young men wanted to lynch him, but the wisdom of the older men prevented this. He was ordered to leave camp, and we got rid of him. We proceeded very happily till we reached the South Platte. Every night, we young folks had a dance on the Green Prairie. Our musician was usually a young fellow named Frank Kellogg, who played the fiddle pretty well. But from time to time, as our musician, we would get Ann Elsla Fowler. She was a young lady who afterward became my wife, and in playing the fiddle, she could just knock the hindsight off Frank or anyone else in the train. On the plat, we stayed a week, laying in a stock of buffalo meat. We camped about two miles from a buffalo lick, to which thousands of those animals came to lick the salt with which the earth was impregnated. July 4th found us filled with buffalo meat and patriotism, and after our usual dance, we youngsters drew up in a line to fire a salute, which was done without other loss or kill or wounded than a young fellow named Bill Richardson, who, in order to make great noise, had overloaded his Jaeger rifle and got knocked a rod or so out of line, his rifle flying 40 feet away. The lick was very large, extended for several miles. In hunting, we would divide into squads of five or six. And when the animals came to lick, we would fire at them. In this way, we killed 22 on our first day's hunt. We cut the meat into slabs as large as a common shingle and dried them in the sun. One morning, we came upon a bull much bigger than we had yet seen. He was a monster in size and fierceness. My rifle was larger in the bore than any of the rest, and it fell to me to shoot him. There were several others with him, and for some little time, I could not get a fair shot on him. Finally, I got a bead on a vital spot on him and fired. He fell, but he was on his feet again in an instant. He saw me and immediately charged me. I ran for my life, expecting any moment to be lifted on his horns. At last, when my breath and strength were gone out, I stumbled on a buffalo chip and fell headlong. Turning my head, I saw that my bull had fallen about two rods behind me. I immediately rose and cut his throat and received congratulations from my companions. I did not wholly escape damage, however. My hands and knees were full of thorns of the prickly pear, which was abundant on the prairie. And in my eagerness to bag that big bull, I had not observed that I was laying in a stalk of thorns, which would give me much acute suffering. In the afternoon of this day, we witnessed a grand sight. 
Luckily, we had just got into camp when there came toward us a band of a thousand buffaloes running with great swiftness and reckless of any obstacle which might be in their way. The ground fairly trembled under their tread, and about one hundred Sioux, armed with bows and arrows, were pursuing them. Four or five Indians would run up to a fat cow and shoot arrows into her until she would fall dead. We saw them kill about a dozen in this manner. If our camp had happened to be in the course of their stampede, none of us would have escaped. Having laid our stock of buffalo meat, we proceeded to Fort Laramie. Here we found encamped a large body of Sioux. About 500 of their warriors had just returned from a fight with the Pawnees. We were told that they killed about 150 of their enemies and had lost about 80 of their own warriors in the fight. They had also taken a great many ponies. When we were there, these Sioux had their war dance. They were all in war paint and danced around a big fire with Pawnee scalps in their hands. The one who had taken the most scalps received the greatest honor. They were something to behold. We had some fear that these Indians would steal our animals, but the white men at the fort assured us we have nothing to fear in them doing so. We made some presents to the old chief, which pleased him much, and he told us through an interpreter that our stock was safe and that we need not guard it. We found this to be true and lost no animals. Our journey from Fort Bridger to Salt Lake was both difficult and disagreeable, especially when we had to travel through the sagebrush and greasewood. When we came to within a half mile of the lake, we halted at Weber Canyon, a pass which for about a half mile seemed impractical. Our forehead men held a council. Reed and Donner declared it impossible for us to get through. My uncle and old man Pyle felt sure that we could. So there was a split. Reed and Donner turned and trailed back for three days and then crossed the mountains. We worked six days building a road and got through on the 7th. This put Reed and Donner ten days behind us. If they had helped us, we would have gotten through on the fourth day. When we continued on around the south end of the lake, crossing the River Jordan, a small stream which runs out of Utah Lake into Salt Lake, we passed many beautiful springs, but on trail the water was found to be saltish, and we were distressed by want of good water till we reached a range of mountains where we laid in supply of fresh water for the 90-mile desert. We started our passage over this desert in the early morning, trailed all day and all night, and all the next day and next night. And on the morning of the third day, our guide told us that water was still 25 miles distance. Our teams were so exhausted that they could not haul the wagons. We had to unyoke them and drive them to the water and then back again to fetch the wagons. William Fowler here lost his seven yoke of oxen. The man who was in charge of them went to sleep, and the cattle turned back and recrossed the desert or perhaps died there. Thus, he was left with his two wagons and no teams to haul them. It was a hard case, as he had a large family with him. He married my sister, Belinda, after we left Fort Bridger, and he had his mother, half-brother, three sisters, one of whom was Miss Hargrave, wife of John Hargrave, who had died and was buried here, and her four small children. Also, he had with him two brothers named Musgrave. The rest of the company helped him with the teams, and he managed to keep up with us. After having passed the desert, we found it necessary to rest our animals for three days, and they were so exhausted and spirit-broken. On arriving at the Humboldt River, we found that Governor Boggs' party was some 70 miles in advance of us. 
the Fort Hall route being the better one after all. My uncle searched all our wagons and found that we had not half enough provisions to take us through. He ordered me to mount my mule, which I did, and brought with me money earned from hemp breaking to take with me to Tom Smith and to go quickly in advance to Sutter's Fort in California to get 12 head of Spanish cattle and supply of provisions and meet him and the party on the east side of the Sierra Nevada. He gave us a little flour and bacon to last till we should overtake Governor Boggs' party and a letter to Sutter stating the condition of our company. The Indians on the Humboldt were at this time hostile and very troublesome, killing immigrants and stealing their stock whenever they got a chance. We managed to work our way down the sink of the Humboldt without being attacked. A short time before we intended to camp, Smith, having fallen a little behind, ran forward to me and said that some Indians had shot arrows at him. He was much frightened. I made him go back with me, and presently we saw 20 Indians who started to run. Tom and I both fired and brought down two of them. We rode around a point of willows, and having watched them for a while, we mounted, and after eight or ten miles traveled, we camped, ate our supper, and slept for two or three hours. We are wakened by the snorting of the mules. On the frontier, a mule is better than any watchdog. If an Indian or a bear or a wolf approaches one of the camp, the mule is sure to give the alarm. So we went up in an instant with our rifles ready. The night was clear and bright, and we could see plainly if there was a party of Indians a short distance off. There were 30 or 40 of them, and they had no brush or other means of hiding or laying an ambush. I told my companion to be of good courage and keep cool, and we must advance toward the Indians and fire upon them. So we did, and shot two more of them. Tom had two pistols, I had three. These we also fired at them. They all ran off in a general stampede. From the number of our shots, they thought we had been reinforced. We immediately reloaded our arms, saddled up, and went forward. Having traveled about a half mile, we found a board sticking by the side of the trail warning the immigrants that the Indians were hostile and dangerous. It stayed on the previous day Governor Boggs had a severe fight with the Indians. One man named Sally was killed in the fight and Ben Lipcott badly wounded that they had killed about 40 Indians and the Indians fought with poisoned arrows tipped with the venom of rattlesnakes and that many Indians had concealed at this point to steal stock and murder immigrants, and that they had buried Sally on the road, and run the wagons over the grave to conceal it. Notwithstanding these precautions, a few rods past, we noticed poor Sally's body. The Indians found the grave, dug him up, scalped him, and mutilated his body in a cruel manner. So I'm going to skip a little bit here, but just to give you an idea, he did make it to pick up some cattle and started back toward his team. And that's where we're going to pick up right now in the story. He says, on my return eastward over the mountains, I reached Johnson's Rancho on the first night and encamped there. The next day I started early and drove till dusk as I wished to tire the cattle so that they would lie down and give me a chance to sleep. They would rest for two or three hours and then try to go back home to their former range. I did not unsaddle my horse, but lay with my rope in hand and slept as it were with one eye open. My Indians slept soundly all night. I could then speak no Spanish and I could not give them orders. So they left me to do the greater part of the work. On the third day, I met Stanton and Pike of the Reed and Donner party. 
They were going to Sutter's Fort for provisions and told me that the Donner Party was over 100 miles behind my company. As a side note, folks, that is the actual Donner Party that gets stuck up in the mountains. Kind of interesting side note. I told them what a Judas Tom Smith was and asked them if they were going to return and save the lives of members of their company as I was doing for mine. Stan declared that he would do so or die in the attempt. The poor man kept his word and died in doing as he had promised. At Bear Valley on the west side of the mountains, we met part of Governor Boggs' party and camped with them. I told them the beautiful land where had been and left them next morning full of desire to get there. Upon the second bench of mountains, about two miles from this camp, one of my largest steers suddenly became possessed by some evil spirit and ran back to where we had passed the night. I tried every way to turn him and get him to go up the mountain with the rest, but without success. The parties with whom I stayed the night previous were still in camp and told me that if I would kill him, they would buy the beef. So I did. The two Indians and I took what meat we needed and that party paid me $80 for the rest. We crossed the mountain range without much further trouble and met our company beginning to come up with their team so worn out that they could hardly walk. When my uncle saw me coming with such a fine lot of oxen, he ran to me, caught my hands in his, and wept for joy. He assembled the whole company and told them that they should never forget the service which I had done them, but hold me in gratitude and respect during their whole lives. We yoked the Spanish cattle to the wagons and got over the mountains with little trouble. A few miles before we reached Johnson's Rancho, we met Stanton with two Indians returning with supplies for the Reed and Donner party. And at night we camped at the rancho, full of thanks with which we rendered where it was due for our delivery from the desert and mountains and our happy arrival into our land of promise. The next morning, October 25, 1846, heavy rain fell. Rainfall must have been that which in the shape of snow stopped the Donner party on the east side of the Sierra. In the midst of the storm, a man appeared riding slowly down the mountain toward the camp. Reaching us, we recognized James F. Reed. He was nearly worn out with fatigue and suffering. We entertained and restored him as best we could. Reed gave full account of what happened to the party of him and Donner after they left Weber Canyon. He and Donner deeply regretted their not having stayed with us and helped us build the road through that pass. He now saw that if they had done so, he and the whole party would have been safe through all their difficulties as we were. He told us that after leaving us, they went back some two days travel, turned to the southwest, and crossed over a low depression in the range. They had a very hard time in getting into Salt Lake Valley, which they entered 55 miles south of where we did. In crossing the desert, they were obligated to unyoke their cattle, drive them to water, and return to bring on the wagons as we had done. Reed's cattle got away like those belonging to Fowler of our company, and he lost 16 head, leaving him only a cow and a calf. The rest of the party furnished him with teams, and they all succeeded in reaching the Humboldt River. Here they took an inventory of their provisions and found it necessary to put the whole party on short allowance, which must continue till Stanton could return from Sutter's Fort with supplies. This, together with their other troubles, made one very irritable. 
They found the rocky fort of Humboldt to be so difficult that they were obliged to double the team in crossing, yoking six oxen to each wagon. Reed was absent hunting game, and Elliot was driving his team. During the work of crossing, John Snyder and Elliot were quarreling and nearly fighting when Reed returned from hunting. Snyder was whipping his own team very severely, and Reed remonished him for his cruelty. Snyder answered abusively and said Reed and he might settle the dispute at once. Reed told him to wait till they got up the hill, but Snyder struck him on the head with the butt end of an oxen whip and repeated the blow several times, drawing blood. Miss Reed ran toward them to stop the trouble when Snyder struck her also. This so stirred Reed's Scotch-Irish blood and enraged him so that drawing his hunting knife, he gave Snyder a thrust with it. The knife entered the left breast, cutting two ribs, entering the left lung, and inflicting a mortal wound of which he died in about 15 minutes. The whole company were much excited by this occurrence. Some of the members were for lynching Reed, and a wagon tongue was put up, and other preparations made to hang him. But finally, after much discussion, it was determined not to hang him, but to make him leave the party without any food. He thereupon took his gray racing mare, bade his family farewell, and overtook us at Johnson's Rancho, as I have stated. Reed told us he was bound for Sutter's Fort and would return at once. He did not do so, however, but went to San Jose and returned later. As to what afterwards happened to this Donner Party, my information was derived from common reports among us immigrants and from conversations which I had with many of those who were so fortunate to escape. Stanton got back to them in safety, but the amount of provisions which he was able to convey was soon consumed. The party was camped near a lake which we then knew as Truckee Lake, but is now called Donner Lake. They built cabins and were all snowed in. Some said the snow was 20 feet deep. They lived upon their starving cattle until the snow buried them. After this, they had no meat, but cooked and ate hides and bones of cattle whose flesh had been previously consumed. They were suffering all the pains of starvation, and at last the flesh of those who died was eaten by the starving survivors. In that way only, they could save their lives. Stanton took supplies to them through deep snow twice. The last time, he tried to return with a party of the strongest of those in the Donner camp and two Indians who had gone over with him, but he became snowblind and died. The rest followed the two Indians who knew the way. One night, the Indians slipped off and left them without other guide than the bloody tracks of the Indians' frozen feet. When the party got out of the snow, they overtook the Indians, one of whom was already dead, and the other died within an hour after. This party all escaped except Stanton and one or two others and the two Indians. Stanton was a true hero. He endured all the labors and gave his life in order to aid and save this Donner party, not one member of which who was kin of him. And that, folks, was his travels to the gold country of California in the mad Wild West. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and the crazy stories. And until the next episode, keep your horses tied up. Thanks for listening.
These are the true stories that made it wild. 